Christens. Today we're going to talk about Book 4 of Virgil's Aeneid. That's something you've been rapidly reading ever since yesterday in order to prepare for this lecture. So, last time we talked, well, the last time's last time, we spoke about Book 2 in the Fall of Troy. We saw very tragic things happen. Laocoon and his sons killed by two serpents that were Minerva serpents, indicating that the Trojan horse, if it were injured, would result in injury of those who injured it. In fact, it was the opposite of that, though. If you take the Trojan horse inside of Troy, then Athena Minerva turns against you, and Troy will be destroyed. That said, how could the Trojans know? Perhaps they should have held on harder to that statue of Minerva, which was called the what? The Palladium. The Palladium. Very good. Then we saw Priam die. We saw Helen escaping and lurking about in the darkness. She had to be saved by Venus, counseling Aeneas not to kill her, because it was not her to blame for the fall of Troy, but rather the three who's who were against Troy. The three gods. Yes. Do we remember the names of those gods? They were. Yes. Um, Neptune, Neptune. Neptune. Poseidon. Yes. Um, Minerva. Minerva. Athena. And Juno. And Juno Hera. Very good. Very good. Very good. Uh, Troy then fell. Uh, well, one last thing did happen. Who was it that part of Aeneas's band did not quite make it to him outside the walls of Troy? And in, in fact, appeared as an effigy larger than life to him that he tried to hug three times and said, love the son that was ours. Who was that person? Yes? Creusa, his wife. Yes, his Asian wife. He will later have, in this book itself, in a sort of African wife, I say sort of because it's not exactly officially, uh, they do not have an official ceremony, and so whether they are wife and husband or not is totally up for debate. By action, perhaps they do act as husband and wife, but by ceremony, certainly not, and that will be a big issue in this book. And then later, of course, you know that what happens between Dido and Aeneas will probably not work out because he is, in fact, fated to marry a woman named Lavinia in Italy. And so, let's get into this tragic story, this book four, this most famous of books. Uh, uh, just to mention, too, we did, of course, go through book three, His Wanderings, last time around, where he tried to found cities in Thrace, also in, uh, where was the other place that he tried to found a city where there was a plague because of Idomeneus' sacrificing of his son? Yes? Uh, Aeneadae is the name of his first city that he tried to find in, or found in Thrace. But this city he tried to call Pergamum. It was in Crete. In any case... His wanderings then came to an end here in Carthage, and here in Carthage he has met Dido. Dido has been struck by a love arrow by Cupid, and now Dido is caught by love's pain and press. So that's how the very book begins. She's feeling this deep, terrible, what is it that we call it? When love is pressing on us, it's as if it's wanting us, crushing us. We call it a what? A crush, a terrible crush. And so love is eating her like a secret flame, because can other people tell that you have a crush sort of by your behavior, but who knows that you have a crush definitely? You do. That's right. You're the one who has to feel it. Exactly so. And don't we hold torches for our crushes? Don't we hold a secret flame of desire for our crushes? Don't we even get sort of, don't we even describe that in language? We say we are hot and bothered by that person and our faces, what happens to our faces when we are confronted with the person that we like? They what? They blush, they get red, they get hot. Exactly. Metaphors of heat and flames 
often accompany not only anger, but also what was called in Shakespeare's time luxury, or lust, or licentiousness, or just plain attraction to some human. It's like they get the blood boiling. Uh, which is interesting that uh, any strong emotion, or at least these two specific strong emotions, both anger and love, are so closely related. In fact, you know that the god of anger and of Warcraft based on it is named what? Somebody quickly, because this is basic. Mars or Ares, yes, obviously. And as you know, Mars has a great attraction for which god, which we saw in the Odyssey, him getting caught with her. Yes? Venus. Venus. There's a strong relationship between war and love. There's a strong relationship between anger and uh, love, or not simply love, but having a crush there. It's as if they're both overpowering emotions that can lead to the destruction of a moment, of a relationship, of a life, or even of a people. In any case, Dido has a problem. She has this crush, but she swore off love after her husband Sychaeus was killed by her brother Pygmalion. I might perhaps give way to this fault, she thinks. But how can she? She talks to her friend Anna, who she calls her sister. And Anna says, well, you know, she gives her counsel that may be good, may be bad. We'll see what the result of it is. She says, do you think that ashes or buried shades carry about, care about such matters? She says, Sakaius doesn't care what you do. He's dead. He's gone. He's a memory. And so he's not going to hold you accountable. Unfortunately, though, Dido has used her promise to Sakaius as a reason not to accept the marriage offers of a king a local king named Yarbus. Now, Yarbus is a chieftain or king of the people who are directly adjacent to Dido. If she were to marry Yarbus, this would solidify her position in Carthage and make her less subject to potential invasion by threats, including her brother, who is now the rule, ruler of Tyr. However, she did make this promise out of sadness to her former husband. And perhaps even spite, because uh, she, she holds, perhaps in some, her heart of hearts, she holds him accountable for the fact that he left her even though he was murdered. Now, if she gives in to her feeling for Aeneas, and then consummates her love for him, what will Yarbis think about her character? He will think that she is a what? She said that she could not marry him because of this oath. If she then... She, he will think she's a what? Liar. A liar, right. And potentially her own people will think she's a liar. Because if she puts her own personal relationship in front of the oath that she swore to her former husband, which she used as a reason not to create a political alliance with Yarbus, then she's putting her own feelings ahead of making her people water. Safer. And so, if she gives in to this emotion to Aeneas, even though it is one of the most overwhelming and overpowering emotions, it will put her and her people in a worse situation. And that is the background to this book. And so, as I was saying, Yarbus is very interested in Dido. And it would be very useful for both of their kingdoms for them to uh, couple together and thus to increase the strength of both. That said, Dido has always made up excuses to delay them. It actually makes you think that the local African chieftains, including Yarbus, are very much like the Who from 
uh, the Odyssey. The suitors, exactly so. And like Penelope making up excuses for the suitors, including the web that she designed. The words feed the fire inside of Dido. Notice this fire imagery. It is going to be overwhelming, this fire imagery. Just as we notice fire imagery in relation to the rage of Achilles after the death of Patroclus and the Iliad, and here we will see overwhelming fire imagery in relation to Dido. Interestingly enough, where did we recently see uh, fire imagery in Book 2 during the What of Troy? During the fall of Troy. And so there is a connection between the imagery of fire here with love and the fire that burned down Troy. And of course, what was the act that first precipitated the fall of Troy? Way back when? An act of lust. Paris stealing Helen as if, as if the fires of love are the fires that burned down where? Troy. And will potentially burn down the life of Dido. The thing about fire is in order for it to sustain itself, it's got to eat away at what? The wood that supports it. For fire to live, something else must be what? Destroyed. Destroyed. Quite right. Quite right. And will that be the life of Dido? Will that be the people of Dido? Will that be Aeneas? We'll have to see. We'll have to see. And so, Anna's words stoke the fire within She's feeling even more of a crush after talking to her friend, which means her friend is uh, perhaps a good friend, but not necessarily the one that gives the best advice, though she gives a very pleasant advice. She prays to the gods, then, above all. Juno, goddess of marriage. Why would she uh, pray to the goddess of marriage? Obviously, because she would like to have a marriage to this Aeneas character, because she is so overwhelmed by love. In any case, she tries to see the future. She does a couple very witch-like things in this book. She takes the Vesera which is misspelled up there, it should be V-I-S-C-E-R-A, of an animal. That means it's guts, it's intestine. Puts them over, it's a mantic sort of process. She puts it on the ground and tries to look at what these mean. In fact, there are a couple other ways of doing this too. Sometimes people do it with tea leaves. They have tea leaves at the bottom of a cup. They turn those over, they look at them, they're supposed to see something. If you ever read Harry Potter and see uh, the charlatan professor Sybil Trelawney, you'll see that um, she attempts to do that sort of thing frequently. The, the guys, Harry and Ron, don't see much in it. But in any case, she tries to see what her future is, what a prophecy is, through the guts of this animal. In fact, later on, you'll see that she, she does this sort of thing, at least fairly commonly, because when she's talking to Anna before she creates a funeral pyre, she says that she's actually trying to create a, uh, a love potion to get, um, to get Aeneas back. And so she has some witch-like elements, this Dido. In any case, the question that's asked, asked here is, what knows the augurs of love? Or what can augur love? Who can predict the effects of love? Not Dido, that's for sure. And so we have her interacting with Aeneas again. At dinner, she hangs on Aeneas' words, and then mourns his absent couch when he's gone. When he's there, she's like, hey, could you tell me that story about Troy again? It's so interesting, especially when your wife dies. And, uh, <laughs> and she's like, your son is so handsome. And then when she's gone, he's gone, she's like, <sighs> imagining her talking to him again. <laughs> These days, you'd be like looking at his Instagram, being like, ha, 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 I'd look so good next to him. In any case, that's what she's doing. That's what she's doing. You might say that she's checking his Instagram account and liking things and making little comments while he's gone. She's obsessed with him. That is the power of Cupid. That is the power of Eros. And so, 
work even breaks off in the city to read Dido's distraction. I think this is very provocative and very interesting. You're all very young. I don't know if you've had crushes before. I don't know if you've acted on those crushes before and had girlfriends or boyfriends, but it certainly is the case that when you are spending your time thinking about somebody nonstop, it's hard for you to get your work done. In fact, nothing else seems as important. Eating doesn't seem as important. Sleeping doesn't seem as important. Doing schoolwork doesn't seem as important. Of course, it is just as important, but do you feel like that? Absolutely not. And so she's the director of the city. She has to be very busy. She has to be very active. She's the CEO. She needs to work long days, long and hard, if people are going to be ordered. And that said, she's spending her time pining after Aeneas, and so the public works projects stop. This is a bad portent, because it means that she is sort of off her rocker. She is off her game. She is not doing that which she must. She is not fulfilling her responsibilities as a ruler at this moment. And so... Enter heaven again. Juno looks down upon this Carthage, this Carthage that she loves so much, with a temple at the center of the city, uh, showing her greatness. And she hatches a plot to quote-unquote, notice those scare quotes there, marry Dido and Aeneas. And so she goes to make a proposition to Venus. And this is very interesting because this recalls to us uh, the Iliad when Hera went down to Aphrodite and requested a zone of the graces from her in order to become more beautiful so that she could seduce Zeus. But in this case, I think you'll find that Venus gets the upper hand on, or gets the better of, Juno rather than vice versa as had happened in the past. Because she suggests to Venus that they work together to bring peace between Troy and Carthage through marriage. Now, obviously, Venus knows that this cannot happen because she knows that Jupiter has dictated that the Trojans will become the Romans when they mix with the Latins over the next 333 years or so, and that, in fact, the Romans will be the ones who destroy the Carthaginians after the three Punic Wars. Zeus cannot go against fate. He will keep any god from going against fate. And so Venus knows that this plan is not going to work. That said, she's very, very, very politic in her answer, seeing as Juno is the queen of the gods and is of higher rank than Venus, she doesn't give an outright no. She responds like this. She says, If only fortune favor the course you urge, lines 144 to 145 in book 4, for I am ruled by fates. She says, If what you want to happen is what fortune will make happen, I will help you in that. But if what you want is against that which is fortune or fate, then I will do as is necessary. Which means, essentially, She's not going, she will look as if she's going to help without actually, without actually helping. And so here's Juno's plan. And you can determine for yourself whether it's actually a plan that's meant to help Dido and to uh, do something kind for those who worship her or something that is only meant to help herself which could potentially hurt the mortals involved. And so here it is. She is going to cause a hailstorm during a hunt that Dido and Aeneas are on. And in fact, Aeneas is going to look so handsome that he'll be described as looking like Apollo. Remember that Apollo is the blonde-haired god of the sun. So he's gorgeous. Just like, well, who's the human who would look most like him? Achilles. Achilles. Very good. Achilles was known to be blonde. And just like Menelaus was redhead, just like Neoptolemus was redhead. So during this hunt, a hailstorm is going to uh, uh, break out. Well, you're out in the open during a hailstorm. Ow, 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 
Anybody ever been inhaled? Oh my gosh, it's painful. You're like, ah, it's like golf balls. Ow, ow. What do you have to look for? Shelter. Shelter, cover. Ooh, ooh. Dido and Aeneas are going to get separated from the pack. They're going to find a cave. They're going to be all alone. No one's there. Nothing else to do because hailing outside. What might they get up to? Well, precisely the sort of thing that Mars and Venus got up to at the expense of Vulcan. The same thing that Ares and uh, Aphrodite got into. They're sort of seven minutes in heaven or so. And so there they will be quote-unquote married. And this is where a tricky bit, this is a very tricky situation for Dido, uh, made even trickier by this fact. There are diverging perspectives on what actually transpires in that cave. Obviously, Dido and Aeneas both know what they share, but one thing they don't share is an understanding of what that means. Which means Dido thinks, after her time in the cave with Aeneas, they're married. What Aeneas thinks is, they're not. And so this will lead to uh, a bit of a conflict, definitely a conflict of interest. As Venus listens to this perfidious plan, she smiles. Because, well, she couldn't have even come up with something better herself. That said, this plan will not end up serving Juno's interests at all. It will not serve Dido's interests either. It's as if Dido is really, really, really pinioned by fate here. Not only has she been afflicted by Venus and her son Eros, she will now be afflicted by Juno. And a question I want you to keep in mind is, who is responsible for the fall of Dido? Is it the effects of all these gods, or is it her own responsibility to act in accordance with her principles even when she is afflicted by gods or strong emotions like these? Which is a very powerful and difficult question. In any case, the hunt begins. Everybody looks so very fine, including Aeneas looking like Apollo, but then hail strikes. And everybody scatters. Everything is a going just according to what? To plan. Very good. Dido and Aeneas then retreat to some cave. Primal Earth and Juno see to the rest. That which is natural to man and woman then occurs between them. There's a very similar sort of scene in Milton's Paradise Lost between Adam and Eve. Not due to, uh, not, not due to the fact that there is hail but due to the fact that they are left alone together. In any case, here's where it gets tricky. For Dido calls it marriage. And with this name, she covers up her fault. So it is as if what Dido is doing here is engaging in what we call wishful thinking. That it would be ideal if Aeneas would also agree that what they had done had resulted in marriage. Then he would stay and then he would become king. And that would itself be a reason to keep Yarbus from uh, attempting to um, be suitor to her. That somehow she might be able to say that even though she had promised Sicaius that she would never take another man as husband, that, hmm, how do I want to put this? That even though she had told, she had told her people as well as Yarbus that because of Sicaius she would never take another husband, that at the very least here, in breaking that word, she would have broken it not because of lust, 
but because of intelligence. Because Aeneas has a troop of men following him. Because Aeneas has royal lineage. Because Aeneas is an acceptable choice as king. Not simply an acceptable choice for one night. In any case, what she wants to cover up is the fact that she has given in to her passion and to make it seem as if this was a choice that she made because she found Aeneas to be a suitable suitor. But it's uh, whether that is the case or not is something we will have to determine. In fact, the language of Aeneas suggests that it's not. And so, as I said in the slide before, multiple gods now, Juno and Venus, have afflicted her. And well, as you would expect after this happens, which god then rears its ugly head? Rumor. And it's described in vivid detail. It's described as at first small and then large. And then actually so large that it goes from ground all the way up to the sky. So where is rumor? Something goes ground to sky, where is it? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And rumor is covered in eyeballs and ears and tongues and wings. Why? Because rumor flies. And what does it see? Everything. And what does it say? Everything. And who does it? And who hears it? Everyone. Exactly. It's a very good description of rumor. In any case, lies mixed with truths then reach King Yarbus. And Yarbus, we now find out, is rather rich. He has a hundred temples to Jupiter. I mean, having a hundred oxen to sacrifice to Zeus or to Jupiter in a hecatomb would make you rich. Having a hundred temples to him? Wow, this guy is exorbitantly wealthy. Well, when he hears this news that he has been betrayed by Dido, that in fact her oath was simply an oath, or her oath to Sakaius was an excuse that she gave to him because she didn't want to marry him, not an actual oath that she by principle wished to enact into honor regardless of who shows up to uh, her threshold, what, Trojan or otherwise, he is made insane, ignited, again, that, that, uh, that fire imagery by rumor. And Jarvis even let slip that he sold Dido her land and offered her marriage, but she took the land but didn't accept the marriage. And so she's sort of been using this man, and it's becoming abundantly clear. Jarvis then calls Aeneas, a greasy-haired second Paris. And you might want to wonder whether that's a, a fair comparison. Greasy-haired, interestingly enough, uh, uh, is something that one might say of a sailor because they don't have time to uh, wash their hair or the means to wash their hair. But the fact that he's a second Paris, I guess in some ways he is. He shows up to a foreign land. He meets a beautiful high-ranking queen in that foreign land. He then lays with that queen, not stealing her from a husband she currently has, but potentially stealing the opportunity Jarvis had to be her husband from him. And so I think there is something to be said for that comparison. Also, obviously, Aeneas is a what? Which sort of person is he? He's a Trojan, just like Paris was a Trojan. And so these Trojans, apparently what they do by reputation is go to other people's lands and abscond with their women. Which is, on the one hand, unfair, because obviously not every Trojan does that, but on the other hand, fair, because two leading Trojans have done that sort of thing, so far as we know, both Paris and uh, the second Paris, Aeneas. In any case, Jupiter sees what is happening, and says, uh, this is a problem. 
Because what is happening, if Aeneas decides to stay in Carthage, then Carthage will never fall, because Rome will never be built, because Rome will never be founded by the descendants of Aeneas. Well, that goes against what fate is, and therefore it cannot happen. So Jupiter sends Mercury to remind Aeneas what his destiny is. And then Virgil makes, I, I suppose I just wanted to mention this just to be pedantic, a small error in lines 305 to 306. He, has, uh, he, he says in the text, his mother did not save him twice from Grecian arms for this. And I take small issue with that, just to point this out. It's the case, it's not actually the case that Aeneas was saved twice by his mother, Venus. Because if we recall book three of the Iliad, it was Aphrodite, it was Venus that saved Paris, not Aeneas. In book five, Venus attempted to save Aeneas, but of course it was Apollo who actually did. And then if uh, Virgil was thinking about book 20 of the Iliad, it's of course Poseidon, Neptune, who saves Aeneas, not, not uh, Venus. So if you can think of two times during the course of the Iliad that Venus saved um, Aeneas, then perhaps you will save Virgil from my correcting of what I perceive as his error. In any case, Mercury is described as giving and taking sleep and even unsealing the eyes of those who have died. So it's like the Night King from Game of Thrones. <laughs> or, or who's responsible for all the zombie movies and shows that we have these days, like The Walking Dead. In any case, he takes this message down to Aeneas, who is wearing a purple mantle that Dido made for him. He is Dido's man, as of now. And what does he say to him? He says, Are you now laying the foundation of high Carthage? He reminds Aeneas of his duty. He reminds him that even though he has uh, been inflamed by romance with this Dido, that he has been having a good time with her, that he seems to feel some affection for her, that he seems to be enjoying her presence and her company and Carthage, that this is not his home. Just as Thrace was not his home, just as Booth Roden was not his home, just as Crete was not his home, he has a responsibility to his current people, to his son, and even to his descendants to keep moving, even though this is such a pleasant place to rest. In fact, Mercury sort of makes the case that this is itself, this city, like the island of the Sirens. Why do I make that connection? In what way could Carthage itself be like the island of the Sirens? Because where is it pulling Aeneas away from? Home. Exactly. It is diverting him from his homecoming. It does not matter that it's pleasant. It does not matter that he's being treated well. This is not his home. It is not where he is meant to be. It is a diversion. It is a distraction. He needs to get on his way. But first, he has to deal with business. And do you think that Dido is going to be very happy for him to say, Hey, baby, I know we just had this great moment together, and you think that we're married, and actually, if I leave, it's going to be big trouble for you, and the people who were your allies might not be your allies anymore. But the thing is, a god just came down and told me it was my fate to leave, and so even though we shared a good moment together, I've got to go, and you can deal with this mess yourself. Think she's going to deal well with that? That'd probably be the worst way to break up with somebody possible. Actually, I can think of one way to make it worse. What if you just tried to run off without talking to her at all? Would that be even worse? That's actually what occurs to him. He's like, well, maybe I can just sneak off in the night. Very who-like behavior that occurs to Aeneas. Who else snuck off in the night? But something not his, which was the Trojan. 
and the refugee, yes, very much like Paris, yes. Not only leaving with Helen, but also leaving with her reputation. And that's what Aeneas is going to attempt to do here. He burns to flee. All right, so given the fact that we aren't quite as far as we wanted to be, I'm going to say that's going to be our first lecture on book four. We'll get into the denouement. We'll get into the actual, uh, uh, I, how do I want to say this, not prosaically. We're going to get into the weeds. We're going to get into the, uh, we've gotten to see the nice parts of book four and the brightness from the flames. Now we're going to have to see the burning ash again, either Friday or Monday. Good work today.